try to plant something in the concrete. You know what I mean? If it grow and the, and the rose petal got all kind of scratches and marks, you're not going to say, damn, look at all the scratches and marks on the rose that grew from the concrete. You're going to be like, damn, a rose grew from the concrete? Same thing with me. You know what I mean? I grew out of all this instead of saying, damn, he did this, he did this. It's like, damn, he grew out of that. He came out of that. That's what they should be. You know what I mean? All the time. Disappeared this very strange and unusual year. 
Yeah, definitely things have gone a little bit topsy-turvy in 2020, I think we can all um, agree. Um, yeah, we've been hosting uh, SF Doc Fest uh, in San Francisco for the last 19 years, and uh, the Roxy Theater has kind of been um, our home base. And, you know, one of the things that our founder, Jeff Ross, always valued is just like the live experience. So uh, when things got delayed because of the pandemic, we always just figured like, well, you know, we'll just, you know, right around the corner, you know, we'll we'll beat this thing and next, you know, we'll be back in movie theaters eventually. But um, I think as we've all kind of learned um, just based on uh, the kind of inept approach that uh, the government did and uh, dealing with this pandemic that uh, this is going to be around a lot longer than uh, we expected. And with it, we had a lot of great films that we found uh, from their, our, through our programming and we had filmmakers that, you know, need to get their films out in the world. And so um, what we tried to do is how could we make a virtual film festival um, showcase these films but also kind of bring a little bit of the live experience um, to it. And so um, through a little bit of research and things, um, you know, we've created a system online where um, during the two weeks of the festival that starts this February or this uh, Thursday, that uh, folks will be able to kind of – there's showtimes for different films, and people will be able to kind of watch it in the comfort of their home. But um, in addition to that, we'll have a lot of live Q&As from the filmmakers um, at scheduled times. And so uh, people can participate with questions uh, via chat. And uh, it's the way to just kind of make it, uh, I guess, a little bit of a less passive experience and just kind of watch Netflix. It's like here you get a chance to talk to the filmmakers or some of the subjects of the film and hear about it. And then um, we've also created a couple of kind of virtual fun events to do. And so, um, you know, we look through about a thousand films to come up with uh, 40 or 50 that are in the festival. And, a uh, thousand films? Oh, my a, goodness. Let's let that, a let that films, soak yes. in for a second. A thousand films? Really? <laughs> Absolutely, Whoa. yeah. That's a lot. There's a lot of films being made out there. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's wonderful so we, that, that that so many films, you know, um, you know, made it to the uh, didn't each even be considered. And it's just imagine if you could have lots and lots, you know, like episodes of the uh, SF Doc, right? Then you could maybe showcase all of them, huh? <laughs> yes, <laughs> the ones that that didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a that's one of the reasons why we felt it was so important to kind of move forward with the festival is that you know, um, you know. Unlike uh, other art, uh, you know, films are kind of being made to be seen with an audience, you know, and we wanted to be able to kind of provide these filmmakers and, of course, your know, audiences throughout the Bay Area an opportunity to see these films because, you know, these films are really great, uh, but some of them are a little bit eclectic and different, and so, um, you know, they might not necessarily find another home out there um, on some of the larger platforms like Netflix or Amazon, and so this is a way for people to kind of discover, you know, new talent and interesting subjects, but also, um, you know, festivals also help kind of break ground. And, you know, if the film does well here as part of our festival, then hopefully other festivals will get a chance to program it and we'll be able to help these filmmakers get their work out into the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. While you're mentioning that, so can you tell us some of the films that actually um, were screened first at SF Doc and, and now are, you know, household staple uh you know there's been so many uh over uh over the years um that i'm not sure if I, there's a particular one that kind of comes to mind but um 
mm-hmm. you know, documentary, um, you know, over the years, you know, I know that, so we run both uh, SF Doc Fest, which is the all documentary film festival that usually takes place in June, but now will be in September. And we also do SF Indie Fest, uh, which usually happens in February. And so like, you know, even a film like, um, you know, the, um, Shoot, why is it that paranormal activity? You know, was which was kind of a cult, uh, kind of horror supernatural thriller. It's like we had screened that film, you know, about 15 years ago, uh, before it became the the big hit that's now spawned all kinds of sequels. You know, and we've um, you know screened films by the likes of filmmakers like Gus Van Sant, and um, and we've even had uh, people like Bruce Campbell come and visit the festival. And in um, more recent years, we've had several documentaries whose titles. Uh, um, <laughs> apologies, um, uh, slipped my mind. You have know, gone on to be kind of uh, you know uh, shortlisted for the Academy Award in documentary or have won different awards, and so um, or filmmakers have gone on to make bigger films that we haven't screened, but are off there doing lots of great things um, in the world. And I think there's a couple of films uh, in this year's festival that um, will probably fit that bill as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, let's see. I was thinking about sharing your bio with our audience, and then we could talk about, you know, this festival more specifically. You know, some of the, the films, because um, I know you have a team, and I was wondering, did you watch all 1,000 films, or do you have a particular <laughs> uh, niche um, within within the documentary film, uh, I guess, uh, genre that you are like, okay. These are the films that come to you, and then other films go to someone else. Or, or do you all do this as like a collective when you when you're going through the various entries? Yeah, uh, it's an interesting question um, because every film festival works a little bit differently, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So obviously, there are certain types of films that each of us on the team kind of gravitate towards. You know, your own personal tastes. Uh, but you also kind of, when you're a programmer, it's like your responsibility is to go in with an open mind. And, you know, one of the funnest, most fun things about this sort of job is um, discovering, you know, and kind of unexpected things that kind of resonate with you. Uh, so with the submissions, we it's all random. So in the sense of uh, unlike other festivals, we don't program as a team. There's, you know, five of us. And it's not like, um, you know, we have a consensus like, okay, everybody watches the film and then we agree how it is, is that we're each programmer is allotted a certain number of slots and then we're randomly assigned submissions. And then through those submissions, we program our individual slots. And so one of the things our founder, Jeff Ross likes to do, if you look in the program or um, the different synopsis um, in the film guide online, is you'll see the programmer's initials or the programmer's name with each film. And so over the years, if you've watched films at Docfest, you might say, oh, well, you know, that's a um, you know, Chris Metzler you know, film. Uh, I, I like his taste, or I like, um, you know, uh, Faye's film, or I like Junkyard's type of film. And so in some ways, it's kind of like each of us is a curator, and so people get kind of familiar with our tastes. Um, but with that said, is that we're, you know, programming kind of blindly in the sense that, uh, you know, I watched maybe 250 films. And so mm-hmm. of those 250 films, I had probably 10 slots, and I have to kind of choose what are the best, you know, films from that 250 slots. But also, like, it's not just choosing the best films, but also ones that we think, um, 
you know, fit with the audience that, you know, we've cultivated at DocFest over the years. And also, um, you know, we also try to kind of consider representations. Like, you don't want – I'm not going to program 10 environmental films, you know. Um, I'd rather, you know, have kind of a smorgasbord of, uh, you know, different sorts of films for discovery. And so that, I think, is where our kind of eclecticism comes in in the sense that, like, um, we don't want to be too predictable at SF DocFest, but at the same time, we want people to walk away and say, wow, I'm so glad I watched that film. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, let me let me um, uh, let people you know uh, know who you are um, by reading your bio, and then we'll we'll come back and talk about some of these films, uh, some folks that uh, who are making films here in the Bay that are a part of the festival, and and some of the the highlights like the opening film and the closing film, and some of these panels yeah. where directors are going to be around. And I don't know if you have any any returning directors. I don't know if a person has a film in the festival, you know, five years ago, and they have a new film. Like, can they keep on returning? So we could talk about that yeah. too. Okay, super. So after graduating from USC with a degree in business and cinema, uh, Chris uh, Metzler's uh, film career has taken him from the depths of agency work to coordinating post production for awful American movies since late <laughs> at seen late at at night in Belgium. His filmmaking work has resulted in him crisscrossing the country with the aid of caffeinated beverages, all the while making his way in the Nashville country and Christian music video industries before finally forsaking his soul to commercial L.A. rock and roll. These misadventures culminated in him winning a Billboard magazine music video award. When was that? That was in '96. Long time ago now. Ah, yeah, it's time for another one. <laughs> <laughs> he eventually joined the independent documentary film scene to start work on his feature-length directorial debut, the offbeat environmental documentary "Plagues and Pleasures on the Salton Sea," which was narrated by legendary counterculture filmmaker and king of trash John Waters. The film went on to win over 37 awards for Best Documentary and was named by Booklist as one of its top 10 environmental films. A cult favorite, the film was released theatrically in the United States and broadcast nationally on the Sundance Channel. With the success of that feature documentary, he has gone on to pursue other subcultural documentary subjects, including Rude, uh, rogue economic, uh, rogue economists, uh, lucha libre wrestlers, swamp, swamp rat hunters, uh, ganjapreneurs, ganjapreneurs. Oh, ganjapreneurs for real. <laughs> ganjapreneurs <laughs> <laughs> and evangel- evangelical Christian surfers. Well, you've got a real eclectic. Um, uh, taste, you know, uh, creative taste, I should say. <laughs> uh, Messler recently finished traveling the theatrical circuit promoting uh, Tilapia Films Emmy-nominated documentary Everyday Sunshine, the story of Fishbone, uh, what, which uh, premiered at the Los Angeles Film Festival, screened at South by Southwest, and aired internationally and aired nationally on PBS. So, what year was that? Because that was a really wonderful film. Oh, well, thank you. So that was 2012, and um, uh, since then, uh, had finished a film, uh, Rodents of Unusual Size, which is a 
offbeat environmental documentary about these giant swamp rats eating mm-hmm. up the coastline of um, Louisiana. And so that came out uh, theatrically last year and was on Independent Lens on PBS. Right, so you need to add that. Yeah, I remember that one. And, and you know, speaking of uh, Louisiana and speaking of, yeah, specifically, you know, the 15th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina and then Laura, and there's another another hurricane that's coming or in, you know. So if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, your time, um, you know, in the Gulf and, and this film about these rats and thinking about the environmental impact of something like, you know, um, levees breached and all of that flooding and all of those bodies and what does that do to the environment, right? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, and one of the things that's you know neat about being a documentary filmmaker, but also I think we see in so many of the films of the the doc makers that have made films as part of the SF Doc Fest is that like, you know, um, the kind of journey and experience on the ground is the thing that you're trying to translate on screen, and so. Uh, during the making of Rhythms of Unusual Size, it's like, you know, Louisiana is this place that is so, um, you know, rich in culture and beautiful, but, you know, it's also kind of dealing with the consequences of, you know, environmental degradation, you know, racial inequality, and all the things that, I guess, come (laughs) when you accumulate a bunch of humans in an area. And um, so what was, you know, interesting is that how even with the tragedy that happened with Hurricane Katrina is that how much people were just kind of devoted to kind of giving back to their community and coming back, you know, whereas I think, you know, so many of us, I think would be like, okay, this is just too much trouble. You know, I'm just going to go somewhere else, you know, but there was so much of a sense of place that was valuable to them that they were going to fight back. And so, um, you know, over the years that we spent in Louisiana, we saw, you know, covering from Hurricane Katrina at that time, 10 years later, you know, and the different kind of creative ways they were still trying to make a go of it. And that kind of perseverance, but also joy in living, you know, um, was something we tried to kind of capture in the film. And so the film deals with this invasive species, Nutria, that uh, there's millions of them roaming around Louisiana. And they contribute to coastal erosion by eating the plants uh, that kind of help protect uh, the wetlands. And the wetlands, of course, help because of storms and hurricanes. And so here they're dealt with they're trying to recover from Katrina. And you have these giant swamp rats, like, making the world even more difficult. And, um, you know, these kind of disparate communities decided to all come together and say, hey, look, we're going to fight and, you know, fight back against this invasion and continue to kind of save our place. And so, of course, we had a chance to enjoy a lot of great music and great food and meet some really wonderful people um, over the course of the making of the film. And um, one of the kind of joys in making the film was, um, you know, there's a great uh, jazz musician and trumpeter, uh, Kermit Ruffin, and uh, he considers himself kind of a, a cook as well. And so before his gigs, he'll go and, like, um, you know, barbecue things up and, you know, um, let people just kind of enjoy some free food before shows. And so one of the things he's known for is barbecue and Nutria uh, because he actually likes it quite a bit and giving it away. And so, and third, it's also kind of an educational opportunity because people are like, man, those Nutria, they're causing all these problems. And like, you know, most people are like, I don't want to eat a rat. But he's like, 
give it a try, you know, and, you know, next, you know, he gets us to eat some food and, you know, <laughs> and it was quite tasty. So, you know, you know, those are things of the, you know, the experiences as a filmmaker, you're trying to craft a story on screen, but you're also trying to bring your experience as a filmmaker too, um, to the storytelling. Cause there really isn't, you know, for at least most filmmakers, the separation between the story and yourself is not so great. And so uh, you might as well be honest about, um, you know, that these are all stories where it's obviously a filmmaker involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow, how how adventurous, you know, of you to eat a rat. Mm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't expect it, you know. Uh, but in obviously, you know, we spend a lot of time out in the the bayou and you know out on the water a lot on boats, um, when you know witnessing basically the attempts to kind of get rid of the nutria. Now, of course, you know, many years later um, in California, nutria are becoming a problem, and so what you know was mainly an issue that was in Louisiana is now spread to you know quite a few different states around the United States, and there's another kind of environmental problem to add to the long list of things that people in California are dealing with. So we'll see if the Californians can get a better handle on them than the Louisiana ones, just in the sense of learning through the experience of Louisiana before the, the nutria get out of control. Mm, right, yeah. Because you, um, uh, in in uh, this documentary, uh, Film Festival 19, um, there, there are quite a few uh, films that, that one would say are environmental, and I was just thinking uh, as I was scrolling down some of the um, descriptions, I was looking at Uncivilized uh, by yes. uh, Michael Lees. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then also I noticed that there's another one um, that is. it looks like it's um, sort of in the same vicinity as as your uh, Plagues and Pleasures on the Salton Sea. There's another one on the Salton Sea or, or in that particular vicinity. Yeah, uh, definitely. And, and both of yeah. these films are, uh, you know, two uh, favorites of mine. I mean, maybe the mm-hmm. one I'll first start off with is uh, Uncivilized. And, you know, this is, it's a great film. Uh, and uh, just kind of give, you know, the audience a little bit of a background on it, you know, is, um, you know, it's set down, um, set in the Caribbean on uh, an island near Dominica, uh, which is where the filmmaker, filmmaker Michael Lees lives. And basically, you know, one summer he decides to kind of like head out into the forest on an uninhabited part of the island uh, to kind of, you know, uh, get away from technology and to kind of um, explore what kind of living on his own would be. I mean, basically it's he's kind of, uh, you know, going to kind of like back to nature sort of thing. But um, a few months in, <laughs> there's like a Category 5 hurricane that hits the island, one of the most powerful hurricanes that's hit that area in the Caribbean. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, he's like become Robinson Crusoe because it's like nobody, everybody's forgotten <laughs> that he's there, you know. And so he's there mm-hmm. documenting, you know, him trying to survive post-hurricane. And, you know, this is a young filmmaker. He's probably in his late 20s or so. And, um, you know, it's just shows you how kind of these unexpected moments of serendipity sometimes result in these very beautiful films and tell us as much about um, global warming and um, the commentary on civilization as it is about just human survival and just like him as an individual. Um, 
and how he deals with this uh, this kind of tragedy. And um, you know, so this that film is uncivilized, and um, you know, one of the things that we love at the SF Doc Fest is like when we're able to kind of program films from all around the world, you know. So this is mm-hmm. from you know Small Island in the Caribbean, uh, Dominica, and um, you know this is again like so many other films is like you know people hear about SF Doc Fest and they know our reputation for the sorts of films that we like to program, but this one. Um, it reached out is that there was a programmer at a film festival in Trinidad, Tobago. And uh, she'd reached out and we'd screened uh, her film at a previous version of Doc Fest. And she said, Chris, I just saw this great film here in Trinidad, Tobago. You need to check it out on Civilized. We take a look at it, you know? And mm-hmm. so she introduced me to Michael and he sent me a link. And I was like, wow, okay, we need to have this one in Doc Fest, you know? And mm-hmm. um, it just, you know, you know, there's people making films all around the world, and so sometimes you just need somebody to kind of shine a spotlight on it. Um, and so, you know, I was really lucky uh, to have that film. And, um, you know, fitting into that kind of environmental nature, you know, we have this great uh, documentary called The Wind, a documentary thriller, and it's from Poland. Um, and it's an environmental story, too, and you're like, you know, you're like, The Wind? Like, like there's a documentary about wind, you know, it's like, how can that be exciting? And uh, it just happens to be that there's this really destructive windstorm that each year hits uh, these mountains in Poland and uh, they, you know, start these large wildfires. They um, um, are so disruptive to uh, people's lives that they kind of drive some people to madness and suicide and even, you know, affect people's health. And so um, it's a really eerie documentary. It's not really made out of interviews. It's really an observational and experimental film of this community surviving this kind of ecological tale of revenge. And it is just an absolutely beautiful film, and it's just like – it's like a horror film. It's like it keeps you on your seat, you know. And so that movie is The Wind, and that's from uh, Poland. Um, And then, of course, you know, closer to – home, another environmental story, as you kind of alluded to, is um, our Salt and Sea film, and mm-hmm. um, that's a story of, um, you know, the Salt and Sea, which is, you know, as some Californians are aware, um, is, a, is a, <laughs> excuse me, you know, is a tale about this accidental salt lake in uh, Southern California, about an hour south of Palm Springs, and um this lake, the Salton Sea, was created by accident in 1905 when the Colorado River, Colorado River overran its banks and basically filled in this hole in the desert. And at the end of uh, things, you know, they finally got the river back on track. But at the end, it created this lake that was like 35 miles long and 17 miles uh, wide. And um, it allowed a lot of farming to flourish in Southern California in the desert. Um, and... Um, it became a resort area in the 1950s and 60s. It was more popular than Tahoe. Then a series of kind of ecological disasters hit the area, uh, floods and fish die-offs, and basically, you know, anybody that could abandoned the area, and so just a hearty few stayed behind and decided to live there. And now it's become this kind of, um, you know, very big but little-known environmental catastrophe. Um, and the reason why there's environmental catastrophe at the moment is that um, it's since it's not a natural lake, it's dependent on um, 
rain from irrigation or water from irrigation from uh, farmlands. And so that water is a valuable commodity in California and it's being taken away. And so as this lake dries up, it's creating these huge dust storms that are causing health issues for the area and also threatening Palm Springs. And so uh, the film explores um, the kind of impacts uh, that um, that this, these environmental tragedies have um, on the area. Ah, wow, wow. Yeah, and um, I was also looking, and I noticed that um, you have uh, Short's Program 3, uh, The Real World. Um, looks looks pretty interesting. Um, you've got uh, see four ways four ways to tell unique African American stories through self reflection, poetry, essay, and oral history. Um, and why don't you tell us about about that uh, that program, the Shorts Program Three? Yeah. Um, so our um, Shorts Program is a program by Faye, and she is just like kind of a our star kind of Shorts Program booker. So she has been programming all the shorts at SF Doc Fest and SF Indie Fest or other festivals uh, for a while. And, um, you know, one of the things that makes shorts programming a little different um, than feature programming is that you're trying to kind of find different themes, themes that um, you develop in the submissions, you know. So in the sense of like some years you're like, whoa, you know, we have a lot of quirky comedy documentaries. Who knew, you know. Uh, Or, um, maybe the things that are going on in the world to uh, kind of comment upon, you know. So, for example, like, you know, okay, we think that, um, you know, um, you know, there's some different kind of environmental issues, and so, you know, she kind of has to thread the needle of finding, you know, not just great shorts, but also great shorts that kind of work together uh, in a program. And, um, you know, this year, uh, you know, given, you know, some of the kind of um, you know, ongoing inequality that exists in our society, but also I think through the kind of empowerment of different voices, um, we wanted to make sure that there was kind of an African-American um, filmmaker block, uh, block in the sense that uh, that were from African-American filmmakers about, uh, you know, their communities and um, also kind of showcase not just those that subject matter, but also the kind of different sorts of, Aesthetics and styles that um, that storytellers use to tell their stories, and so, you know, in this kind of collection of, I believe, uh, four or five short films, um, we're trying to kind of tell, you know, unique African American stories, and so, you know, one is a little bit more kind of, you know, cinema verite in the sense of, um, you know, observational filmmaking. Uh, another one is a little bit more kind of essay and kind of spoken word based, you know, and um, you know. And so that's the story, you know, you know, there's, you know, there's a historical film in there. There's, you know, the contemporary one. And so um, it's just kind of a real kind of eclectic hour of, um, you know, some really cool African-American stories from around the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and, and it's really, um, I was just looking at, you know, one of the titles is um, uh, We Are Free Because of Harriet Tubman. And then the other one, Legendary. 30 years of Philly ballroom. So, um I was just so the film the block is an hour and I I know in you know when we're actually physically at the Roxy um the films you know they have a particular programming like you you can see them on this particular day and they repeats and then it's gone. But with the virtual programming, 
How 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 does that work? How do you get tickets and and how do you how do you make sure that you can see all the films you want to see and then how do you make sure you can attend the uh the director events where you can, you know, participate via chat? Yeah, so um the if everybody goes to our website, S F N D S F I N D I E, um, you know, we have our kind of traditional um film catalog. And once they find a title that they're interested in or a short swap, um, when they click on it, they'll it'll show um, you know the different times that they're screens, and then also when the Q and A is scheduled for. And so um, some of our films only screen you know once at a certain block, you know like seven o'clock on a Thursday. Uh, but thankfully, most of the films, um, our filmmakers have kind of allowed us to screen their films during the entire festival. And so typically, most of these films and short blocks will be up uh, from September 3rd to September 20th. And people can kind of watch them at any point in time. Um, there is a list of different kind of Q&A times. So in the sense that um, the live Q&As are kind of scheduled kind of like a traditional um, – you know, film festival in the sense of that it's once the uh, at one point in time, and so if people go to, um, you know, the kind of uh, the film guide, they'll mention what time the the Q and A is going to take place at. But with all the kind of live Q and As, if you're not able to participate at that time, they'll be recorded and then can be watched uh, afterwards. And uh, you know. There's an entire list on the website at ssnd.com, but I think of you know the or so films that we've programmed. I think that about you know 80% of them are going to be have live Q and As, and the other 20% will have uh, recorded Q and As. And so I don't believe that there's any film where there hasn't a filmmaker that's decided to not participate. And um, you know we're really thankful for that because. You know, the thing that's neat about Q&As is you get a chance to kind of pull the curtain back a little bit on, you know, what inspired the filmmaker to, you know, make the film, um, what was the process like, you know. Uh, but then also some of them, you know, for example, there's a film that we're uh, screening, another uh, local film uh, called um, Ride Slow, Take Photos. And um, that is, a, you know, a local filmmaker and a subject, um, there's a, this great photographer, Eric Massey, who rode his bicycle from San Francisco to Arizona uh, to kind of get a firsthand perspective on the immigration issue. And with it, he took uh, this large vintage film camera to kind of take portraits of the people he met along the way and also kind of tell the story of immigration. So, like, at that Q&A, we're not only going to have, um, you know, the director, Dan Cowles, uh, but we'll also have the subject, the photographer, Eric Massey. And so it's like, you don't get just a chance to hear the filmmaker, but you get a chance to hear the subject of what it was like to uh, have a film made of you and what that process was like, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really awesome. Yeah. And um, I was wondering if, if there are any other, um, you know, Q&As that you wanted to highlight, as well as uh, any other films, particularly films, you know, of African-American um, or African diaspora interests, um, I was also looking at um, in the shorts program uh, Smallville number one, uh, shorts program number one Smallville, and I noticed that there's um, Little Point Richmond, and I'm wondering is that our Point Richmond, California? 
Yes, that is our point, Richmond. I have not seen uh, that uh, that film yet, so be able to kind of comment on it, which I'm sorry about. Uh, but I do know that that kind of program is all about like, you know, um, you know, communities or small communities um, kind of around the world, you know. Um, and so they're kind of like portraits on a micro level. And so yes, that's about uh, about how uh, point, our point, Richmond, uh, has its own kind of unique. Uh, small town vibe, even though you know, survive uh, <clears throat> by this obviously large urban metropolis that we live in in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in regards to films, I might uh, you know you know highlight um, yeah. There's one film that I want to mention uh, called A Place to Breathe, and that is a, another um, local film. Uh, it is uh, both by local filmmakers, but also some of the story takes place. Um, you know, nearby, and you know, it's a you know, in this time of uh, COVID, uh, and also with all the kind of discussions about immigration, uh, it's you know, it's a it's a healthcare documentary about the kind of trauma that refugees experience and how um, the kind of some of the innovative ways that um, you know d- doctors and nurses um, try to kind of deal with. Uh, the kind of traumas that these, you know, immigrants have and how they kind of are able to kind of be incorporated in our community. And so tell some stories from Oakland and then also in Massachusetts. And uh, in that story, they're refugees from as far away as like kind of Eritrea and Africa uh, mm-hmm. to uh, South America uh, to the Hmong in, um, in Asia. And so it's a really kind of, uh, you know, diverse story of, you know, what kind of some of the kind of, um, you know, healthcare issues that uh, these immigrants deal with. And, uh, you know, these stories are kind of personal journey about how they survive and thrive. It's called A Place to Breathe. And so that uh, film is really special because not only will I have uh, the filmmaker and producers there, but several of the subjects in the film, uh, some of the refugees. Oh, nice, nice, nice. And, and a film I was looking at as well, uh, Unlocking the Doors of Cinema, uh, Nazir um, Andari. Let's see. So that one I have not seen either. This is oh, one of the, okay. the great things and challenges uh, with uh, <laughs> with a kind of a team effort is, uh, you know, tip, so typically <clears throat> when we do the live Q&A or, the, you know, the live festival, and this will be true in the virtual one, is that, you know, you know, some film festivals, when they do the Q&A, they just have random people moderate the mm-hmm. Q&A. Uh, but we at DuckFest is that we, the programmers, are responsible from not only programming and booking the film, but also, um, you know, seeing the film to in front of the audience. And so these Q&As will be moderated by the programmers, and you get a chance to get a little bit of a perspective of, you know, what inspired the filmmaker or the programmer to program, uh, you know, that film. Um you know, there's another film that one also kind of um, mention um, that's uh, you know really fun, and that is called uh, Bleeding Audio, and um, mm-hmm. that is our closing night film, and uh, it's a story about a local kind of alternative rock uh, band, um, the Matches, and it's a story of this kind of like band that blew up big time. Uh, it's made kind of a made up of this kind of quirky ensemble of musicians that kind of like took the music industry by storm and then 
in the midst of their kind of rise, uh, the music industry kind of falls apart, and, of course, the band breaks up. And what I think makes this film kind of different than so many other kind of music documentaries or rock docs is that, you know, you get to, you know, you get an idea of the kind of creative process that these musicians are involved with, but this story is really also kind of a larger story of just like kind of like cultural change that has gone on in our world and also how these changes in the music industry um, not only, you know, you know, um, affect the way that, you know, we, you know, buy and consume music, but also how it affects the, how it affects the sort of music that we as an audience get. And so um, it's a really kind of interesting behind the scenes story of, um, you know, the music industry and like how does kind of an average musician, you know, survive in this digital age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Then I have another one to oh, ask you about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was gonna mention my other, and you know, we always have, we all have lots of uh, you know favorites, but um, you know, another kind of you know neat film is Insert Coin, which is our opening night film, and mm. uh, this is a film about uh, the video game company Midway Games, and. You know, some people might wonder, like, okay, well, how could a, a documentary about video games be interesting, right? I'd rather just play a video game. But the, this is a story about Midway Games who kind of created some really – Oh, can't hear you anymore. Chris? Uh-oh. Did I lose him? No. Still there. Can't hear you, Chris. Oh, Call dropped. He'll call me back. Um, so while waiting for Chris to call me back, I want to um, to let you all know about the film that. Uh, oh, there he is. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, all the natural world we're dealing with in the pandemic. Um, but uh, I was telling you about this great film, our opening night film, Insert Coin. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and they so yeah, you know, Mortal Kombat and NBA Jam are like. Like it's kind of the golden age of video games, and so um, this is kind of a story that transformed, um, you know, the video the video game industry because they were very like kind of punk rock and anarchists. But then, um, of course, with any sort of um, great rise, there's a great fall, and um, the kind of behind the scenes story of this kind of um, upstart video game company that just kind of took over the world uh, and created some really famous is just like something that. I think there's a lot of surprising stories that um, would gain, engage anybody. So that's Insert Coin, and that's our opening night film. And we'll have um, – that's this Thursday, uh, September 3rd, and we'll have uh, the director, Joshua Shui, and then also some of the subjects in the film uh, there for the Q&A. So it should be fun. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, I want to go back to Unlocking the Doors of, of Cinema, just in case um, people were wondering what it was about. And I uh, wanted uh, – to read the um, uh, the description so people can know about it. And then I wanted to ask you about Resistorhood. I don't know if that was one of your films or not, um, uh, Cheryl Jacobs. Graham, um, I noticed that um, you've got some pretty powerful films, you know, with uh, sort of thematically around, you know, women and also uh, uh, women directors. Um, so I don't know if you know that particular one, but it looked pretty interesting. Um, so Unlocking the Doors of Cinema... Uh, explores 50 years of work by the daring Syrian auteur um, Mohammed Malas. Uh, Malas, an exile from his home in the town of 
Kanitra, maybe, <laughs> uh, provides audiences, uh, provokes audiences to contemplate loss, memory, and home from the 1967 war and Palestinian camps in Beirut to the songs of Aleppo and the political tragedies of Syria, Malas exemplifies what it means to be an artist and public intellectual. So that's 61 minutes. And that's preceded by the short film A Syrian Woman by Kawla Al-Hamuri and Louis Kareem Sayed de Caprio. And the film is about six Syrian women living in Jordan, Six Syrian women in Jordan recount their personal stories of survival and dreams of rebuilding a better future for their children, and that's 11 minutes. That looks really, really powerful. Are you going to have um, the director and of the two directors? Are they a part of? Um, are they going to be? You mentioned um, the majority of the directors are are participating in the Q and As. Are these um, directors also participating? I believe that yes, both of those. I believe both of those directors um, are participating. Just doing a little bit of a click here on our list here before. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, um, that the the filmmaker from the feature there um, mm-hmm. will be doing a Q and A live Q and A on Saturday, September nineteenth, PM oh. screening. Oh, super! Okay, that's going to be really powerful. Um, Okay, and then and then what about Resistorhood? Is that one that you know? Uh, that is not one of my uh, films, but I've heard some really good things about it from the film festival circuit. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, as you kind of alluded to, is that you know, you know, one of the things, you know, I don't know what how the percentages break up uh, this year, but typically, um, you know, over the years, our you know, films have been pretty evenly divided between about 50% uh, male and about 50% female, um, you know, identified, uh, you know, filmmakers. And so, you know, representation is a big thing within, you know, the, you know, the film world in the sense that, you know, you know, often at some of the larger film festivals, it's like, you know, maybe 10 or 20% of, you know, films are done by, you know, female filmmakers. And so, you know, we're not out there necessarily looking for, um, you know, to try to kind of like, you know, balance things out because we're, you know, looking for, you know, great films. And what we found over time is that, you know, uh, kind of bootstrap independent film festivals, you know, that, um, you know, have embraced a lot of different styles, wind up attracting, you know, a diverse, you know, number of creators. And it's something we're proud about in the sense that, that, you know, not only are we giving a voice to um, a diverse group of people in, you know, our world, but also that we're telling these really interesting stories from, you know, different places, you know. And that's so the idea is that the representation isn't just, you know, you know, on screen, but also uh, behind the camera as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, this one looks really good. Um, it says, following the shocking results of the 2016 U.S. presidential election, Women across the country took to the streets, the Internet, and the Capitol, organizing one of the most remarkable resistance movements in political history. Fueled by anger, fear, and hope, activists came together to rally for not only women's rights, but immigration and LGBTQ rights, racial and social justice, and equal representation in government. 
Resisterhood follows six women who became grassroots activists leading the resistance in the fight for civil rights, inspiring women across the country to become more politically active and getting more women elected to office. And I was wondering, are there any other films uh, that sort of look at uh, sort of women in politics? I'm thinking, you know, about the centennial of the um, uh, of the ni- well, the ratification of the 19th Amendment and the centennial of of the uh, women, white women anyway, getting the right to vote. And uh, <laughs> and so I was wondering, um, are there any any films, um, particularly since of you know sort of the time when you all are actually having the festival this year as opposed to June. Uh, any films around around that theme? Uh, unfortunately, no, I don't believe so. And I think that's kind of partly um, just the circumstances, you know, when we, you know, certain themes kind of develop. And strangely enough, like through submissions, we didn't have a lot of um, filmmakers that were kind of uh, following that issue. And I think that mm-hmm. might be because, um you know, with the kind of election, typically what you wind up finding is like there's this kind of um, obviously filmmakers and, you know, television programmers kind of program around is that a lot of the films that kind of explored that subject are ones that hit the film festival circuit last year and then will now are currently on TV or being released kind of in a, kind of a wider way. Um, and um, so a lot of our films – we programmed, we locked programming back in late March, early April in anticipation of the June festival. And um, this was kind of, you know, some of us kind of run on the cycle of like, you know, obviously there's big heavyweights like Sundance in January, South by Southwest. And so uh, these were kind of the films that were kind of ready, ready to get out into the world around uh, point in time. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And and what about the film um, Out Loud? Do you know anything about that one, Gail Williamson? Uh, Williamson, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's actually, um, um, in you know, has some different um, kind of local associations as it is, and so you know, it's a story of the kind of first all transgender and gender nonconforming choir in California, uh, which is the Trans Chorus of L.A. And so it basically it's following, you know, the kind of lead up to their first performance. So it's like the behind the scenes of, you know, um, you know, over the course of, I think, a half a year, a year um, of the kind of choir director kind of pulling together this disparate group of people to, um, uh, to kind of sing in harmony. And also how do you, you know, um, given some of the kind of prejudices that, um, you know, some of the kind of members have kind of dealt with in the outside world. It's like, how do you kind of build up their confidence to kind of uh, let their voices shine and also that they can shine in this kind of public role? And so, uh, well, do you, uh, you're breaking uh, up. kind of transformation. Oh, uh, in transformation. Can you hear me okay, No, Wanda? Yeah. Yeah, I can hear you again. Uh huh. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for your patience here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no problem, no problem. I was wondering, um, of the uh the two films we just spoke about, um, do you could you tell us if they're having um you know, what when when the when the uh, directors might be uh in conversation? Yes, let me pull that up. Okay. Uh, just give me a moment. Mhm. So, um let's see. So without loud uh, the screening where there will be a live Q&A uh, with not only the filmmaker but some of the participants will be Tuesday, September 8th at 8 p.m. 
and that's for uh, Out Loud. And then uh, uh, Reg- uh, Resisterhood, uh, the story of um, the kind of 2016 election and uh, different kind of women's rights activists. Um, that live Q&A will take place on Saturday, September 5th, after the 6 p.m. screening. After 6 p.m. Oh, that's coming up. Okay, cool. Super. That'll be yeah. this weekend, yeah. Right, that'll be fun. And so the, and, mm-hmm. No, go ahead. And there's, so, yeah, I think the thing – so um, outside of having the recorded Q&As, there'll, usually there's um, a live Q&A each so – there's one Q, at least one live Q&A each day. Um, and so oh. the idea is like – you know, if you check out one of the films early in the festival, you know, hopefully you'll come back and maybe come and, you know, watch some other films. And, you know, the thing that we've tried to do um, with, uh, you know, with this festival is that, you know, um, tickets are affordable. They're 10 bucks. you know, cheaper than even if you go see a movie in person. Uh, but then mm-hmm. we also try to keep our passes, you know, pretty affordable. Uh, so if you want to check out uh, more than one film, and you want to do a really deep dive on documentaries so they try to make it accessible in that way. Yeah. Do you have any um, student discounts or anything like that, family passes? Uh, you know, that is a good question. Typically we uh, we do, and I believe we have them. I just don't have them in front of me at the moment. Uh, you think, okay. uh, let's see what we have uh, here. Typically I'd say, like, if there are any students out there that are listening and want access to DocFest, if you – you know, you write us uh, and talk about we, we're typically able to kind of figure out a way uh, to kind of make something uh, work. Um, so, like, um, so individual tickets are $10. The pass to go kind of enjoy all the films is $150. And, um, and, I, and I believe, um, you know, there might even be kind of a multi-film pass that we're offering. And sorry if I'm uh, a little bit – with um, – this, it's been kind of an interesting challenge putting on the festival this year. Um, you know, it's been a lot of fun, but it's required a little bit more work because, you know, you, it's already a lot of work to put together a festival, and then when you have to kind of switch gears in the middle of it, um, there's a lot of new things that you're kind of learning along the way. And um, the last few months, we've kind of figured out a way to kind of, you know, kind of bring the excitement of the festival to the virtual world. And, um, you know, as part of that, you know, some of the, the things that people get used to with uh, DocFest is, uh, you know, not just meeting the filmmakers, but also parties. So um, we'll have some yeah. kind of, uh, you know, happy hours, um, you know, for some of our filmmakers. But also we uh, we recorded two episodes of uh, a game show we're calling Filmmaker Feud, where um, it's free for people to watch. And what we do is we have two different teams of filmmakers that go bat to bat and be able to kind of answer movie trivia questions a la family feud and so each episode's about a half hour and it's just it's a lot of fun and so it's just mm-hmm. another way to kind of hopefully you know bring the fun uh bring the fun at home even when we're living in this kind of more virtual environment right yeah that looked that looked really fun i'm glad you mentioned that yeah yeah um did you already tell us about the closing night film i don't remember i'm kind of like lost uh, in all yeah, these so closing night. <laughs> <laughs> uh uh Yes, uh, so the closing night film is Bleeding Audio, uh, which is the story of uh, the local band, uh, The Matches, and the kind of, um, also being kind of a reflection of the the music industry. Uh, but, you know, we didn't chat about uh, the our centerpiece film, uh, Truth or Consequences, oh. 
which is uh, a really cool um, kind of experimental sci-fi documentary, and it's a story of the you know the small town of Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. And um, oh, I know you that know, kind of, I know that place. My friend bought a house there, and and because some <laughs> other friends bought houses there, and I was looking like I thought about it, but I'm like, dang, it looks kind of desolate and isolated. I mean, the the, the property. Is is a really inexpensive to purchase, but and I read the history like how could a town be called Truth or Consequences, right? Oh yeah, talk, say more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's named after the 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 quiz show the back in uh, yeah. the game show back in the nineteen fifties, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. you know, it's a little bit out of the way place in the middle of New Mexico um, mm-hmm. that you know, of course, has some you know history to kind of. The science of the atomic industry, um, you know, of the you know, middle part of the 20th century, and then over time, it's just kind of attracted a lot of um, creative people who do different types of art. And of course, when you live in the middle of the desert, you know, aliens, of course, intersect with some folks' stories. And so, it's um, Truth or Consequences is kind of a speculative documentary um, of, you know, what it's like live in, you know, kind of an out-of-the-way place like Truth or Consequences and where kind of fact and fiction, fact and fiction blend together. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's just, it's it's a trippy film, you know. It's probably a good one for, you know, uh, a Saturday night <laughs> uh, and just to kind of like get transported to a new world. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was just wondering. You have to, um, you have to let your friends know about that. Oh, I totally will. Yeah, um, I was just... Um, uh, Amara uh, Tabor Smith. I think she and her her sister both bought a house there, and they and I think their mother is with them. And then my friend Ava, she she bought a house there. Um, yeah, are they in the film? I don't believe so. Um, it's been a few okay. months since I've last uh, uh, seen it, but I don't remember them being it. But with that, so there is quite a range of people um, mm-hmm. in the film. So. They're definitely, you know, um, while there's some main characters, it really is kind of a kind of an overall, you know, portrayal and survey um, of mm-hmm. the town itself. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm going to tell them about this film. And and then I wondered about your film, Public Trust. That looks really good. Uh, David uh, Garrett Byers um, film. No, you know, I we're looking, you know, we look at. Seen... Oh, okay. You, but you know it. Oh, oh, oh continue. It's a party. Yeah, um yeah, tell me where that's in public trust. Um oh here it is. Yeah, it says um, cuz you know you think about land, you think about property, you think about ownership, and then now with people there, you know, so many people without without housing. Uh so many people internally displaced and like how how do we keep people housed? And and this is a definite way to do it, you know, if we have public trust, you know, then uh, then land is allocated for certain kind of things like housing, so that so that industry can't take it ever. Um, yeah, yeah. So it says here yeah, uh, in the future. Oh, go ahead. Oh yeah, and I it, I think you kind of hit up on a point. It's like you know, you know, it's interesting. You know how documentaries often kind of reflect, you know, the contemporary world. You know, and you know through mm-hmm. it tell stories, but also hopefully try to help provide the kind of, you know, the catalyst for change too, you know, I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. many of these films, they're not necessarily, you know, always necessarily recommending a 
a solution, but the idea being is that if we, you know, discuss these important topics, then hopefully we as a community can come up with solutions so that we can all, you know, uh, live and thrive better. Mm-hmm. Right, right, certainly, certainly. Um, and could you look up and see when uh, when this film is screening where the director is going to be around uh, for the yes, q definitely. So um, I believe that the Q&A for Public Trust is a recorded Q&A, and so that it would okay. be available um, throughout the entire um, thing. But actually, yeah, I believe, so Sunday, it'll be live Q&A on Sunday, September 13th at 5.30. Okay. All right, cool. Nice, nice. Super, super. Okay, cool. Wow, it's been really and fun. Great... Um, no, go ahead. Yeah, most definitely. I'll always enjoy uh, chatting with you, Wanda, and um, the kind of uh, the sorts of films that you enjoy. So um, hopefully we've kind of created a nice kind of up. Mm. Yeah, lost you again. Hopefully we you created some kind. Yeah, at the last, you faded out again. Uh-oh. Chris, are you still there? Oh, oh, he had a call back. <laughs> Let's see. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. Thanks again um, for you, having you, me, Wanda. <laughs> yeah, you, you yeah. cut out again. <laughs> like, are you in the mountains well, traveling here from L.A.? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I'm like, I'm here at my office, and, you know, since the pandemic happened, uh, you know, the technology's kind of gone uh, awry. But you know, I do appreciate you and the audience kind of sticking through the kind of technical troubles, and um, you know, know that um, you know, SF Access will be taking place this Thursday, September third through the twentieth, and um, we'll look forward to kind of following on social media about how people feel about the films. And obviously, thanks again for your continued support of uh, Bay Area Arts, Wanda. Oh, you're quite welcome. Why don't you give the website again one more time so people can make sure that, you know, they, they you know, sort of go peruse, you know, the uh, the selections this uh, season and uh, and get their tickets. Yeah, so um, DocFest is part of the larger uh, arts organization SF Indie Fest, and so our website is www.sfindie.com. SFND.com, and so there you'll find a film guide uh, for all the films as part of DocFest uh, that's screening virtually this year, and along with uh, different um, screening times for the live uh, Q&As with our filmmakers and subjects this year. Okay, cool. Oh, you know, I, I didn't get a chance to ask you, and uh, and you can like let this be a parting comment, and then maybe we can have you on again if your answer is yes, um, but are you working <laughs> on any new films? Like right now, that uh, you're ready to open or something, <laughs> or be screening I, on TV. <laughs> yeah. Well, always trying to be uh, a bit creative, and so right now I'm kind of juggling two things. One is I'm in the kind of knee deep of programming for SF Indie Fest for our February festival, and then along the lines, mm-hmm. I'm working on an environmental documentary, uh, another quirky offbeat one about cockroaches, and so um, oh. still have a bit of a ways to go. But, um, you know, cockroaches outside of just uh, being a creepy, crawly animal are, you know, kind of a threat that many people um, 
are dealing with with climate change and um you know, it's a big kind of environmental justice story because the communities that are at greatest risk of this um, are, of course, some of the ones that, um, you know, kind of are unrepresented uh, within government. And we're um, trying to kind of tell a story about, uh, you know, the history and science behind the cockroach, but also the kind of growing threat that um, they provide um, with global warming and climate change. So uh, it, mm-hmm. it'll be kind of an environmental horror story of some sort. Oh, gosh, I don't know if I can be able to watch that one. Just like, ooh, <laughs> all the cockroaches crawling all over everything. Like, ooh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, well, we're definitely um, interested because cockroaches, I hear, they predate uh, pre- predate this, our species, and, and they will be here after we're gone. That's what I hear. <laughs> that is that is the the legend, and it happens to be true. So hopefully, we humans will figure out a way to survive as long as we can, even uh, if we're hell bent on self destruction. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, we could bring on a cockroach as an advisor. How'd you make That's it? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thanks well, again for everything, and Wanda, and, and uh, have a, a happy Tuesday, everybody. Okay, you too. Uh, congratulations on, you know, the 19th uh, edition of, of this wonderful festival as a part of uh, SF Indy. And, yeah, I hope you have a wonderful 19th, uh, you know, um, celebration and anniversary, September 3rd through 20th, online, virtually. Thank you. We'll keep it fun. All right. You take, take care. care. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, hmm. <laughs> Let's see. So I was going to actually um play uh a uh a rebroadcast of an of a show that first aired last year, September eighteenth, uh, with Risa Simpson, um uh, Push uh Festival, uh Sawyer Rose, uh who has the exhibit Stones, um and uh and I don't know if I had to, what else I had there because when I'm looking at uh different different um shows that I've uploaded into the to the studio I I'm not certain if I mean well sometimes I don't remember what they were but I want to play before that I want to play a uh oh actually I had an interview with Michelle uh Rosewoman about Ed Kelly and I don't know when I did that one, and that was really nice. But I think I'm going to play uh, Michelle Rose Woman's uh, Vamp for Oshun uh, right now and then figure out what I want to play next. <laughs>
and that was again uh, Michelle Rosewoman, Vamp for Oshun. And I'm still I'm trying to think. I think I'm going to. Uh, gosh, I haven't listened to this interview with Michelle Rosewoman regarding Ed Kelly in a long time. So I think I'm kind of leaning toward letting you all hear that interview. Um, Ed Kelly, wonderful educator and um, artist here in the San Francisco Bay Area, Oakland specifically. I'm taping now. Um, Wow, thank you so much for agreeing to this um, second try at at the interview. It's Mm -hmm. my pleasure. Yeah, and... um, I wonder if we could maybe talk about Ed Kelly because he is the reason why you made this journey. He's the reason why many things for me. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, the journey and uh, he's he just um, and I met him at an early stage in my life and he very much shaped my direction as a piano player, along with my other influences that kind of kicked into place later. Uh, but um, yes, definitely, Ed Kelly was uh, my mentor, my teacher, my friend. And I sometimes I really hear and feel him coming through me, mm-hmm. and uh, that is really a blessing because he kind of uh, helps me to to slow down, sit down, and uh, and and lay it out, you know, real precise, deliberate, and soulfully, you know. Mm-hmm. But those are my roots in the music. Um, uh, he, he definitely shaped me in many many ways, and he is really missed whenever I come to the Bay Area. It's a hole there, it's nearly as big as the missing of my mother and father when I come out here, mm. really on that level, and yeah. it meant so much to me, and always will, and always will. Mhm. Yeah. So, so how did you come to meet um, Ed Kelly and study with him? Okay. Well, uh, let's see. Stories always. I never know where to start them because they always go back, back, back. One <laughs> reminds me of before, but if I could put it simply, I. Uh, I auditioned for the music department at UC Berkeley, mm-hmm. and I improvised for my audition. So I was rejected as a music major, mm-hmm. and then I auditioned to take an ear training class. And the woman said, "Well, why aren't you auditioning for for music as a major?" And I told her that I had and had not been accepted. And she slammed her hand on the table. She said, "I disagree with their decision," and she got me in. Mm-hmm. So soon after getting in, soon after. Soon after getting in, um, I uh, heard about uh, Laney Junior College having a big band and needing a. I'm sorry, an interview on the radio. I'm sorry. I, I, I heard about uh, Laney needing a, a, a pianist for the big band, mm-hmm. and uh, so I auditioned and I got in, and uh, that's when I met Ed. So little by little, within three or four months, I had completely phased out of UC Berkeley and into hanging at Laney. I never enrolled. I took a couple of semesters of a harmony class with Mr. Diamante, mm-hmm. and I hung as much as I could around and with Ed, and um, in, in the next few years, his uh, his influence was, re- it was a real grassroots kind of situation. Although we were at the school, um, there was no formal training with Ed. I never took private lessons. It was just about hanging, like the way people used to learn. So that's how I met, and um, from that point on, we just retained a close contact. And before I moved to New York in 78, I had the opportunity to play a double bill at the Keystone Corner on a Monday night. I had my group, and Ed Kelly was there playing solo. Mm. That was a great honor. I left left here having played the Keystone and having played a double bill with my mentor. And many years later, came back and played a duo concert 
with Ed at Yoshi's with uh, Tui Heath and Ray Drummond in the rhythm section. Nice. So that was all wonderful. I have to say, when I listened to that, I was uh, I needed some more uh, Ed in me because, uh, <laughs> as I say, he was so centered and took his time. There was nowhere to run to, you know. Mm-hmm. Where in my case, uh, I was in a hurry, it seemed. So I think I've settled a lot, and I know that uh, Ed's influence is, is something that helps to, to shape my direction to this day. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, and the winds are blowing on the East Coast with rain and everything. How did you get up there? Well, I, it just so happened that uh, although uh, for this event I had a flight booked for Monday the 29th, which would have meant I didn't make it, mm-hmm. right after booking the flight I got asked to do a very special event in Memphis, Tennessee, and they wanted me there on the 29th, so they flew me there, changed the ticket, mm-hmm. flew me in there on the 28th, and flew oh. me here on the 30th, mm. so I actually got out on Sunday. Uh, it was set up that way beforehand, and it means that I missed the worst of everything there, although I hear when I go back, uh, there's likely still to be no uh, power, electricity. Mm-hmm. There is none where I live. Right, yes. How are your friends, um, family um, there? Uh, everyone out there is at various uh, degrees of struggle. Some have power, mm-hmm. uh, some don't. Uh, I live on the Lower East Side, so I'm in the area that was hardest hit. Mm. Others are with power. I think that it must be quite quite a scene right now where you can't walk out your door and buy food or or anything, with everything being shut down in the area. So yeah. a lot of people are finding ways to get uptown. I think the cab drivers are very happy right through here. Mm-hmm. No subway system, although I heard the buses are free today. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, that's good. That's good. Um, in New Orleans, uh, uh, they're having um, the 14th annual um, Voodoo Fest um, that's put on by, um, uh, what's the sister's name, um, uh, Tracy Kelly, um, out of... Um, Voodoo um, Authentica, and that's right, um, sort of in the, uh, um, trying to think, the the tourist area, I'm trying to think what the name is. Bourbon Street. Yeah, Bourbon Mm -hmm. Street, yeah, exactly. Um, And uh, so they're going to be honoring the ancestors at the end of Voodoo Fest, which is at 7 o'clock, so 5 o'clock our time, and they're going to be doing um, a prayer and, and particularly, you know, praying for... Uh, the folks um, that are um, suffering uh, because of um, Hurricane Sandy. A lot of folks, a lot of people in Haiti. Yeah. Uh, no accident that all of this happens at, mm-hmm. at uh, Halloween and, and uh, Dia de Muertos, which is Friday. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's when we're, when I'm playing here for Ed. So mm-hmm. it's really on the very day where we on, where we honor our, our Eguns, speaking mm-hmm. in the Yoruba terms. Yes. And... Um, so that's what time it is, huh? Mm-hmm. Right, right. And I was just thinking when I was on, uh, your website is really nice. Thank you. Uh, yeah, the Reverb Nation. I mean, the videos and the music, it's really, really uh, easy to be connected to you. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I tend to use my, my main website, but I can't, uh, which is just michellerosewoman.com, but mm-hmm. that can't be updated in the same way by me. Mm-hmm. But I can keep the tracks changing and adding and the video clips, posting, whatnot at, at Reverb Nation. Mm-hmm. Also at Facebook, I, I constantly post new content. Um, uh, pretty soon I'm going to be putting up some photos of what my past couple of days were, which were incredibly interesting. I was 
on a panel in Memphis, Tennessee with Dr. George Clinton of the Funkadelics. Oh, for really? Yeah, Dr. Clinton, myself, and Alex Pate, Alex S. Pate, who is a hip-hop uh, academic mm-hmm. educator mm-hmm. In, um, in Minneapolis. So the three of us were part of the Berkeley College uh, a co- conference, which is actually Berkeley City Music, a program for, for 4 to 12th graders with mm-hmm. 20 to 30 sites throughout the country and Puerto Rico. Um, very grassroots. Um, there's all these sites that uh, perpetuate the music and the teaching of the music to mm-hmm. young people. And this was connected to Stax Records in Memphis, and we, uh, Al Bell was the executive director of uh, Stax Records, was with all of us for days and a speaker, and we did we had a tour uh, personalized, personalized tour of the studio and and uh, a lot of exchange with between the worlds of pop, funk, jazz, and Latin music mm-hmm. in terms of how it can be best taught in such a way to to bring the the idea of social change through music to young people and amongst ourselves how to to utilize it as a as a tool for social change so it was very interesting and uh my time spent with Dr. Clinton was especially interesting because that's an extremely intelligent man and a really kind soul mm-hmm. uh, people don't know him on a personal level i i certainly didn't and it was a a real surprising and wonderful opportunity that's led to a, a great connection between us and uh so, you know, um, the, the websites are are all great for for us to be able to let the public know what we're doing, and it's nice. Uh, I really love the tools of of today's technology for our ability to connect directly with the public, mm-hmm. to communicate directly with with folks that are appreciating music, and it's all very encouraging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. A friend of mine, uh, uh, Cecil. Um, um, Cecil's last name, um, Cecil Brown, uh, filmmaker and educator out of UC. Um, I think he, he was at Berkeley, and I think he might be at Irvine. But he, he has this project called Digital Humanity, mm-hmm. and um, and I was just I just thought of that when you were talking about, you know, these tools of that we use to help us stay connected, and then you were talking about how this particular program that invited you as, as a panelist was looking at how... Um, the, the four of you or the three of you? Three of us. The three of you could uh, could share with young people how uh, one can use art for social ch- social change. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was just looking at um, that, uh, I think it might have been the concert um, at Keystone with uh, Julian Priester, Julius Hempel, um, Paquita Carroll, and Oliver Lake. Was that the concert where um, Ed Kelly was on uh, solo piano that you mentioned? Wait a minute, you're mixing some things here. What was the concert you're mentioning? Um, uh, Keystone Corner. Well, um, but the one with, you saw a video? No, 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 no. You you um, you um mentioned um, on your bio from your website, it talks about um, a concert at Keystone Corner. And remember, you mentioned that you had your band at oh. Keystone Corner. Oh, that was a different band. No, that band was with uh, trumpeter St. Louis trumpet player Russell Siddique who was based here for many years but who's been in Europe for a long time mm-hmm. and a tenor uh, soprano player who named Leon Fernandez who was a great player but seemed to have decided that music wasn't his his thing 
Uh, Leon, if you're out there, I always wondered what happened to you. Such a great young musician back then. Mm-hmm. I had a group called the Lunar Ensemble. Being that I'm from here, yeah. just to clarify, I'm from Oakland, but I've been in New York for 34 years. Mm-hmm. So uh, as far as what you mentioned, those are just all individuals that I've worked with. Uh, Some okay. together. <laughs> uh, by Katie Carroll had me working with Julian Priester, Julius Hemphill, mm-hmm. uh, and others here before I left for New York. Okay. But that was Baikita's group, and Baikita was one of the founding members of the Black Arts Group from St. Louis, Bag, mm. and he was my neighbor. To wow. him, I met Oliver Lake, Julius Hempel, Lester Bowie, Roscoe Mitchell, mm. uh, on and on, all the ACM and, and uh, Bag folks I met through my connection to Baikita. It's all, like I say, I can't begin the story in any one place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, yeah, and it was so great uh, that you were with us um, this summer at the Hillsburg Jazz Festival, and uh, and you featured um, with special guest Julian Priester, so that was really that nice. It was great for me, yeah, mm-hmm. a great honor, and uh, first time that we played in that way together and uh, spent time like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus to be a part of the Hillsburg Jazz Fest and all that uh, Jessica Felix does there, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, vital presentation of great music and in a setting where she makes the musicians all feel very looked out for and appreciated, and, and, and the audience does as well. It was a great experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's just uh, one thing about Hillsburg, which is different from uh, some of the... Um, the larger jazz festivals, um, you actually can talk to the artists and you can get close to them because a lot of times they're on the stage and you never, your path never crosses in front of them because they go out one door and you right. go out another door. And well, yeah, she sets that up real different. She wants the musicians to hang through the weekend, mm-hmm. and uh, she really makes that happen um, by housing everyone for the weekend and and even sending us uh <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, Daphina, Kopisha. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's really wonderful. And then it was so cool to find out that you're you're good friends with Miranda Bergman, a good friend of mine. Yes. We share a good friend. She's a wonderful muralist and political mm-hmm. activist, yeah. Yeah, she is, she is. You know, the Women's Building Project is just phenomenal, that mm-hmm. wonderful mural, and then her work um, with the um, uh, the print uh, the print shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's busy with projects. She's although she's retired from teaching. Mm-hmm. Finally, <laughs> she's busy. Yeah. Doing what she does. So tell me about these wonderful ensembles. Um, we can start with um, with your um, Yoruba. Okay. Well, that's the one to speak on right now because New Yoruba has. Uh, well, first debuted in 1983. Mm-hmm. Next year is our 30th anniversary, 2013, uh, and it's my 60th. Uh, seriously? And, uh, yes, seriously. So congratulations. Yeah. So we are going to record and release next year. Never recorded, although I, hmm. I'm hardly ever mentioned without reference to that ensemble. Mm-hmm. And that ensemble came from um, the the two greatest. Uh, Influences. Well, it's more than two, but I'll keep it simple for the moment. But <laughs> I was busy uh, at the piano and with Ed Kelly and whatnot when I discovered a class in Cuban, uh, uh, Afro-Cuban percussion at Laney. Mm-hmm. I walked in the door one summer. And really, I can say that's when my musical path was really born, when I directly encountered the mostly the non-secular aspects of Cuban folk rock music, which is what that class took me straight into. 
I started playing percussion and, and congas mm-hmm. there, and then, which was, I think I was about 19. Hmm. And I started to learn the, the songs for the Orishas, the cantos, and the um, spiritual realm that that is reflected through uh, this tradition, which came to Cuba and very strongly here now, but it came specifically from the Yoruba, from Nigeria, as well as from the Congo, mm-hmm. and from Dahomey and the Arara tribe into Cuba. and. So I learned here directly from Marcus Gordon, who's well known in the area. He was my first teacher, and he brought me into the into a knowledge of the spiritual and religious aspects of the music. So after a while, these were very parallel wor- worlds at the time. Jazz and Cuban folklore really did not cross or connect, mm. uh, and I was kind of moving into separate worlds. One is one retains tradition you, you try to learn and retain the tradition the other you're expanding you learn the tradition and expanding the tradition mm-hmm. the nature of jazz more improvisation and expansion of tradition and some would think that ne- how do they say narrow the train shall never the twain narrow the twain shall meet something like that one of those things mm-hmm. but for me in my dreams literally in my dreams they started to meet and I started to hear the Orisha Cantos in the setting of kind of a contemporary jazz setting. Mm-hmm. And all of my writing as a composer, I, I was listening to and learning and being so shaped by the rhythmic traditions that came through this avenue that anything I wrote, I could come back to later and and find perfect fits from, from the folklore, either in ter- most in terms of uh, some of the rhythms, either rumba or bata, rhythms that fit to what I had written because they were already shaped by by them mm-hmm. in a in a non intended way, but because it had shaped my whole concept as a writer and, and, and piano player, it was just always in there. So when I started to hear the music in this manner, I started to arrange some uh some of it as I heard it. And during that time I met Orlando Puntilla Rios in New York. I moved to New York in seventy eight. Mm-hmm. and met Puntilla in 80. And I was playing with a Cuban songo group at the time. And and Puntilla and Soundscape. Soundscape was a performance space run by Verna Gillis that brought together jazz and specifically the explosion of Cuban music that came with the Marialitos and the Cubans in the early 80s, which is where Puntilla was and where we all were experimenting and putting these idioms together. So Puntilla saw my direction and invited me to uh, to uh, Bata classes and and to, um, uh, in order to learn the traditions as opposed to sitting on the drums, which really wasn't part of his world for women. Mm. And for me, that, that wasn't something I felt the need to challenge. I was in the midst of the most incredible learning situation I could imagine <clears throat> with the foremost master in our country who was willing to share knowledge. So I began to build repertoire for the ensemble around his his repertoire mm-hmm. and around his voice. And I proposed New Yoruba to the NEA New Yoruba Musical Celebration of Cuba in America. I received the grant, mm-hmm. and we debuted at the Public Theater in 1983. Right. 
that's how that all came to be. And, and Puntilla was uh, always there kind of helping me to shape a very vital source of, of uh, authentic uh, and correct reference, you know, to, to be sure that what I presented was right from every angle, which was really important to me. And, and to this day, and will always be, it's why I study both traditions deeply. And for me, I find that a lot of the Cuban folklore, as opposed to coming out as a Latin jazz kind of fusion, for me, the, where it comes out is with a lot of funk and uh, and um, and gospel kind of. Uh, it reveals itself to me in more in those terms. When I'm dealing with rumba, in the context of New Yoruba, it has more of a Latin jazz sentiment. Mm-hmm. So that shapes the music, and the more I study, the more I know, the more equipped I am, and somehow things happen when they're supposed to, and 2013 will be our year. I'd like to mention that in February, we're going to launch a Kickstarter campaign Mm -hmm. to help fund the project, because in April, we're going into the studio. We have two dates on the East Coast, one, and then we're going to the studio for three days, and then we have another date, and the personnel for the recording and these performances is my A lineup. I'm so excited. I've got <laughs> Oliver Lake mm-hmm. on soprano and alto, Gary Thomas on tenor and flute. I have um, a great young trumpet player, Freddie Hendricks, on trumpet. Mm-hmm. I'll have great trombonist Vincent Gardner, as well as Howard Johnson on tuba, Barry. The rhythm section will be Junior Terry on mm-hmm. bass and, and Adam Cruz on drums. Uh-huh. And the bata and folkloric section will be Perito Martinez, Roman Diaz, and Abraham Rodriguez. So this will be what's go, what's recorded in the studio. The release will be in September of 2013. Mm-hmm. And as I said, February, we hope that those, there's a lot of people here who have asked me when we're going to record, and I did manage to bring Puntilla and New Yoruba out here. Years ago, we played Yoshi's, mm-hmm. as well as Half Moon Bay Kumba. Excuse me, not Half Moon Bay, but Santa Cruz. Kumba. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so folks that uh, love the group and have been waiting for the recording, I, I ask you all to keep an eye out for the Kickstarter campaign in mm-hmm. the month of February and help us to make it happen. Right. And we're doing it. That's it. It's time. 2013 is our year. So when is your birthday? Is it September My or February? My birthday is actually March 19th. Okay. But our our recording and performances are in April, early April. So mm-hmm. it's it's a little a delayed reaction, but it's all of one ilk, mm-hmm. you know, to be turning 60 the year that New Yoruba turns 30. Mm-hmm. And for those that are into numbers and have any connection to the the Orishas, then uh, then they'll know the they would understand when I say the numbers also are very relevant to to the outcome here in terms of how things are falling. Mm, Yeah, Yeah, well, tell tell those of us that might not know but are interested, what does it mean, 3060? Oh, well, um, well, certain numbers are associated with certain Orishas, and I'm associated with certain Orishas given my own spiritual practice, so we could leave it at that for now. But one that (laughs) folks may relate to is the fact that Elegua, who governs the crossroads, Mm -hmm. opens and closes all doors, and, and ceremonies, his, mm-hmm. uh, the number for Legua is three. Mm-hmm. So we find 2013 and 60, two times mm-hmm. three, two times 30 <laughs> to be of interest, let's mm-hmm. say. Okay. Uh-huh. Huh, nice. Yeah, I was looking at um, some of the songs, um, Eshu, uh 
Mm-hmm. Is Allegra, right? That's right. Right. That's yeah. on my uh, release, The Inside Out. Mm-hmm. But with my quintessence uh, ensemble, I've a lot. In fact, a lot of the things we do in New Yoruba, New Yoruba have been recorded in a quintet context. I'm able to uh, hear the music in in several contexts because, mm-hmm. as I say, it's all connected to this rhythmic foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, Quintessence, our last release, The Inside Out, we, uh, Pedrito Martinez is a guest on there. Through overdubs, we're able to achieve something similar to the quality of New Yoruba through the overdubbing of uh, Pedrito, who did all three Bata parts. And we, myself and Pedro and my godmother, Olufemi Mitchell, did the vocals hmm. through overdubs. And uh, so we, with the issue La Roye, which is one of the tracks on The Inside Out, yes. uh, we achieve a similar quality to what New Yoruba does. Mhm. Right, yeah. And and the uh you know, your compositions are so different. I mean, they're not like each other. I mean the E R I'm thinking emergency room, but maybe that's not what it stands for. It it stands for that as well as for a particular Dambolero who was one of the greatest uh who was one of Puntilla's first and uh, that's Eddie Rodriguez, mm. a good, oh. good friend. Yeah. And without going into a lot of details, uh, there's a double meaning entendre there. But one can hear in the music there's a dark uh, or at least mysterious unknown mm-hmm. uh, uh, area, and then there's kind of a culmination which one feels uh, an outcome of uh, success and positivity in it just musically implied. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is very different in character. I want to say that one of the amazing things that came from my connection with Dr. Clinton, who is actually a, a very articulate, very intelligent person who makes it well known that he's got two years clean and oh, that, his, yeah, that his whole orientation is very different right through here. Um, I had the great honor. I laid my CD on him, the very one we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And when I landed at the airport here in California, I got a phone call, and it was his his partner who was calling me up from the car to say, listen, George wants to talk to you. So she put Dr. Clinton on the phone, and Mr. Clinton said, girl, you so funky. (laughs) And I was so touched. I just burst out laughing. Just about crying because the whole connection was unexpected. And when he listened to the same CD, uh, I had to, uh, mentioned him when I handed it to him that it there was some de- definitive funk on there, but of kind of sophisticated nature. <laughs> so to have Dr. Clinton telling me I was funky, mm-hmm. what can I say? Except I came up in Oakland with the funk, with the R&B, and that those are real major influences in the way I hear the music too. So that what I tell anyone when I'm teaching and in a position of educating with uh, um, young musicians is to become their unique self by allowing everything that really touched them and turned them on and turned them out to be a part of what they do so that what they end up doing is full of the passion so that it's not an intellectual decision but it comes from their very soul-connected response to the music. Well, that's what I've done and I think that that means that there's an integrity and, and a sincerity in there, and I'm not trying to be someone I'm not. I'm not trying to do something that doesn't come naturally to me. Mm-hmm. And I think those things are vital, especially today with this kind of the markets flooded with, with music and young musicians, and how do you stand out? I think by figuring out who you really are and being that. 
to mm-hmm. developing that. Yeah. So that's what I've done, mm-hmm. uh, um, and I think it's worked for me. It, it hasn't made me a millionaire, and it hasn't made me a household name, but I think it's exactly what I should be doing. Oh, I know. When I first, I think I was at that concert when uh, a new uh, Yerba came to town. Oh. And, yeah, and I have never forgotten oh, you. Oh, how beautiful. And I was like, who? And I didn't even know who you were. I was like, who is Michelle Rosewoman? Rosewoman. Wow, that sounds so beautiful. Rosewoman. <laughs> what a great name. And I just had to be in the house oh. to see you because your name just, just well, spoke so that. eloquently and so so rhythmically and so beautifully to me. And and then I saw you, you know, there with, you know, with your folks, and it was just like the experience was so wonderful. Well, then that means you had the experience that not many people here had to actually hear and see the master, Orlando Puntilla Rios, mm. because that's the one time he ever came. Yeah. Yep, the one time he ever came, and I'm so honored that I was the one that brought him. Mm-hmm. A lot of people here were so happy to see him here, and um, I was so honored to be able to bring him and to have him as a partner mm-hmm. in that ensemble was just, I feel the same way about my connection with Ed, that we went on to become such friends and even family. He, he played at my my folks' 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. He played while mm-hmm. my father sang, you know, mm-hmm. nice. his theme song, um, Our Love is Here to Stay, which he loved to sing to my mother mm-hmm. after 60 years of marriage, you know, that was 50 <laughs> years already. So that all made sense. But, yeah, the, your mentors are are vital that you can have someone you feel that way about is a grounding force in your life, mm-hmm. um, that you feel you came through someone and something special that helped to shape you in the way that you want to be shaped. And I have to say my parents were my mentors, too, mm. that I really could base who I am, how I live, and what I believe in on what I was brought up with as opposed to having to reject it to become who I was. My folks were politically active. My mother was an amazing artist, a visual artist mm-hmm. that shaped the way that I hear music. So, mm. yeah, um, it's, yeah, it's good when you can kind of see uh, uh, an integrated picture of who you are that somehow it's, it's making sense and mm-hmm. you have a sense of where you came from and how you became who you are. Always becoming, though. Mm-hmm. There's so much to learn. There's so much I'm excited about. And uh, with these sort of different opportunities that present themselves, even last minute, this one to be here to honor Ed mm-hmm. is huge uh, to me. And, you know, all kudos and congratulations to, to Angela Wellman and and this uh, OPC, if I got it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, that's right. Oh, okay, for um, trying to do something so vital in the community. I'm sitting here now in the building as mm-hmm. I talk to you. Right. Having walked in here for the first time today, mm-hmm. and Mr. James Gales is, is, isn't Gale isn't stalling the oh, the, uh, okay. the art right now. Nice. And the the uh, portrait of Ed, which is going to live here permanently, and uh, really hope that uh, I guess this is going to be on the airways before Friday, right? Yep, tomorrow. So mm-hmm. we want to ask all of you to to really show your support and come out. Um, if you're not familiar with what the school is doing, it's an opportunity. And to honor the great Ed Kelly, who is one of the most important figures ever in the Oakland area to the music. 
Right. He bridged the gaps between blues, gospel, and jazz. He he bridged the gap between the church and jazz. And I remember the big band performing in churches, and I'll never forget one where Ed spoke up front and he told the church, he said, well, y'all, we were supposed to be in the church across the street. And they decided they couldn't have us in there because they said that this is the devil's music. And he said simply, as Ed had such a a way of doing now you listen and tell us you think this music could come from the devil. Mm-hmm. That was the end of that. Right. And um, so he represented that because he played in the church all his life, and his wife ran the the choir, Faye, mm-hmm. and his children were lead singers in the choir. And yeah. at the same time, she led the choir at Laney, and he ran and he taught at Laney, and it was all of one and. Ed was vital in many, many ways, so understated. I used to feel so frustrated. I still do, honestly, very frustrated at the lack of uh, documentation of his greatness Mm -hmm. because he only ever recorded two as a leader. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel that either one represents him at his highest level. There There are moments for sure. But if Ed had been in New York... He would have played with the greatest rhythm sections in the world. And um, that would have been, you know, uh, a context to hear him in. But Ed's choices were equally important. Mm -hmm. And with all the respect for the fact that Ed stayed here and the likes of me and so many could come through him, learn so much, feel so grounded in that there was someone like him here to be around who was so generous. And I remember coming back to town after I moved to New York. Anytime I came, I made a beeline to wherever Ed was, whether it was at Laney. I used to look at him standing at the chalkboard, and I would just stand out there and laugh because he was not really that kind of teacher. With me, it was, hey, Ed, what was this? What's that? It's like, come here, Mick. And he would take me to the piano and just show me, and that's how I learned. Mm-hmm. So to see Ed at the chalkboard, okay, he had to do that, but that was probably him stepping out of his comfort zone, you know. Mm-hmm. And then um, uh, so many people learned so much. I used to go to the jam sessions. You know, I'd show up and pop up and surprise Ed when I was in town, and I used to sit out there and watch 30 saxophonists come up and sit in while Ed played and played and played and played and played and played behind one, behind the other, who they never knew when to stop either. (laughs) (laughs) And I wrote a a poem and a a blues song called, um, uh, uh, let's see, uh, A Fire Burning, and I'm going to be performing that Friday night. That was written for Ed. Oh, nice. That really has to do with the way he could keep that fire burning mm-hmm. in the in the midst of with the lack of anything and in the midst of everything, you mm-hmm. know, uh, that he just kept that. He used to call himself spontaneous combustion. Oh, wow. He would always call us, you know, uh, hey, I'm, I'm spontaneous combustion. <laughs> mm-hmm. And folks that knew that, they're probably laughing because they know it's true. Yeah. And uh, he could. He can combust spontaneously in a minute. His, the greatest lessons for me from Ed were the simplest. And he would walk into the room, lay his hands on the piano, the big hands in any fashion, let the sound ring in the air, 
And when that sound stopped, everybody in the room had been transformed and in one simple movement learned that music was sound. Not riffs, not songs, not heads, but sound. Mm -hmm. Without saying a word, I learned from Ed that music was sound. And maybe that's one of the greatest lessons about music in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what I was thinking when you were talking about um, your your poem and the piece, A Fire Burning, uh, that that reflected um, Ed Kelly's passion. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I can, I can recite the words real quick. Okay. This life is a passionate dance. To keep the fire burning, evade the damp, stifling folds of time standing too still, or getting by unnoticed. It's a crime they don't know you got to live right to get the time. Like a rock standing the test of, like my spirit soaring in spite of, or when we're still, but in the midst of, still, but in the midst of, I am still in the middle of this, a fire burning. This life is a passionate dance. Oh, wow, that is beautiful. <laughs> I'm sure Ed is listening and enjoying that as well. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, he is really pleased about this celebration and renaming of um, the concert hall in his name with that beautiful work of art that James Gale has um, is hanging or has hung um, while we're speaking. Yeah, exactly. And I have to say he's been in touch with his daughter, who I believe lives in Texas, Cheryl, mm-hmm. who wrote in to say, I am so pleased that people still remember and honor my daddy. Hmm. <laughs> of course, of course. Right? That's what my response Are you kidding? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's so is Terrence going to be coming through? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. We need y'all to come out. Um, I don't know. You know, the woman that runs the the, the school here, she's in um Yeah, Madison, Angela. Right? Yeah, she's at, yeah, she's at the university working yeah. on her PhD. In her PhD. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, to spread the word here and how wide the publicity goes out, I don't mm-hmm. know, but this this should help what mm-hmm. you're doing. And oh, yeah. We really ask people to come out. It sure is affordable. It's $15 in advance, mm-hmm. 20 at the door, and 10 for seniors. Oh, yes, very affordable. And, you know, yeah. it supports it. It honors that. It supports the school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and certainly. it would really be, I think, important to show the love mm-hmm. Friday night, you know, show the love. Oh, yeah. And, and it, hap- could, mm-hmm. um, so it happens to be the Dia de Muertos, which is the Day of the Dead celebration. Mm-hmm. And in other terms, where we honor our ancestors right. and we give, mm-hmm. we give honor to those that came before us and help to shape who we are. So for me, uh, it, it couldn't be more perfect. It's an opportunity to do exactly that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's real important to um, to um, revere and honor our, our um, ancestors or Egon. So yeah, it's, it's a really, really sort of a perfect opportunity. And and then uh, you know, Ed Kelly was about establishing institutions. I mean, he within his person was an institution. And Angela Wellman with um, the Oakland Public Conservatory has established an institution mm. to bring music to to children in particular, but to Oakland uh, specifically. And it's just a great place that she has there that uh, classes and instrumental music and vocal music for adults and children. And like you said, everything is really affordable. So it's just wonderful, well, you know, that you're, that you're in town, you know, to help celebrate really and celebrate that. Yeah, I was honored that she felt that I was the one that should be here to help consecrate the room. I am so honored by that. I just, you know, can't say enough about it. 
um, to be um, to be of Ed and to be able to try to honor him at all times in what I do musically, that can only make me better in every way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much um, for joining us to talk about um, your musical career and celebration of your 60th uh, and the 30th of your of your band, New Yoruba. New Yoruba. New Yoruba. Yes. Yeah. And um, and to have a recording, you know, Please. going into the studio. Yeah, all of that is so is uh, so perfect, perfect. And I thank you for having me on. And uh, excuse me, Wanda. And we'll see you here. I hope. <laughs> oh, certainly. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. All right. Friday evening. <laughs> Great. All right. You take good thank care. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye bye. Peace and blessings. Yeah, that was a really wonderful conversation. Um, and Oakland Public Conservatory, as you know, is now on San Pablo um, at the historic uh, California um, is it California Hotel, um, right next door to Emeryville. And I wanted to let folks know about uh, a new film that just opened uh, in the Bay Area Virtual Cinemas, Mr. Soul, directed by Melissa um, Haslip, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Please forgive me if I'm not. It's a new documentary about the legacy of Soul, S-O-U-L, uh, exclamation point, the America's first black tonight show. And it opened at the Roxy Theater in San Francisco, the Balboa and Vogue Theaters in San Francisco, uh, BAM PFA in Berkeley, and Raphael at Home in San Rafael. And um, this evening, tonight, Tuesday, September 1st, at 6 p.m., Pacific Standard Time at BAM PFA, Berkeley Art Museum Pacific Film Archive, is hosting a special live stream Q&A with the director, Melissa um, Hazlip, and co-curator of BAM PFA's Black Life Series, uh, Ryan Austin Dennis. And so um, you can go to the uh, BAM PFA website to get all the details for that, but it should be really awesome. And this particular film is um uh, let me tell you about the film <laughs> uh, the film Mr. Soul, which is written directed and produced by Melissa uh, Heslip and music composed by Robert Glasper, the voice of Ella's Heslip by blair underwood and um and before Oprah before Arsenio, there was Mr. Soul and uh yeah, and uh this particular film. Is, is really, really wonderful. From 1968 to 1973, the public television variety show Soul, guided by the enigmatic producer and host Ellis Heslip, offered an unfiltered, uncompromising celebration of black literature, poetry, music, and politics, voices that had few other options for national exposure, and as a result found the program an improbable place to call home. The series was among the first to provide expanded images of African Americans on television, shifting the gaze from inner city poverty and violence to the vibrancy of the black arts movement. With participants' recollections and a bevy of great archival clips, Mr. Soul captures a critical moment in culture whose impact continues to resonate. Um, So again, um, you definitely don't want to miss this wonderful, wonderful um, film. Uh, Mr. Um, Hazlip was the host and executive producer of Soul, the first black Tonight Show, 
in 1968, Soul was launched as a local New York broadcast. In 1969, the series rolled out nationwide on PBS on WNET Channel 13. By 1973, Hazlip had produced over 130-hour-long shows featuring a dazzling array of A-list guests featuring rare live performances and interviews from the legendary Al Green, heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali, Sidney Poitier, Harry Belafonte, Cicely Tyson, James Baldwin, Gladys Knight, Stevie Wonder, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Ashford and Simpson, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, Billy Preston, Black Ivory, the Delphonics, Bill Withers, Nikki Giovanni, Ossie Davis, Ruby Dee, Sonia Sanchez, The Last Poets, Wilson Pickett, Odetta, Mary Clayton, Mandrill, Cool and the Gang, Tony Morrison, Kathleen Cleaver, Betty Shabazz, Stokely Carmichael, or Kwame Ture, Reverend Louis Farrakhan, or Minister Louis Farrakhan, Mrs. George Jackson, George Faison, Patti LaBelle, Roberta Flack, and many more. I remember a friend of mine um, told me, uh, Qualin told me about how his father would turn on the show and have the children, he and his siblings, watch Mr. Soul. And I had never heard of Mr. Soul. And so it's so wonderful now that this film, this documentary sort of, you know, showcases this wonderful person um, and, and, and you know, and the many, many people that, that he uh, interviewed and just the great archive of, of African-American history here in this country, um, American history, that that we are privy to because of the work that he did. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's really wonderful. I haven't finished it yet, um, but just... Just the opening credits, you know, with Al Green singing <laughs> are, are just really wonderful. So this conversation this evening should be really, really, really phenomenal. And, um, and yeah, yeah, really, really great to have a, a film like this, Mr. Soul, S-O-U-L, apostrophe, uh, exclamation point. <laughs> All righty, so again, tonight, uh, September 1st, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, uh, as a yeah, uh, collaboration with BAM PFA, this live stream Q&A with the director, Melissa Hislip. All righty, so I just wanted to let you know that so you don't miss it. Um, it might live somewhere afterwards, but you definitely want to catch it, at, you know, when it happens. It's nice to catch things when they happen, if at all possible. Thank you so much for tuning in to another edition of Wanda's Picks, and I think we're going to go out with... Um, what are we going to go out with? We came in with Tupac. I think we're going to go out with, um, I think I'm going to do something with uh, Nana Sula because um, I really uh, really like her her latest work. It's really, really awesome. And uh, we played a little bit, little bit of it um, in our Hurricane Katrina 15th anniversary uh, reflection report back this past Friday, which was the anniversary of the March on Washington uh, for Jobs and Freedom. A lot of, lot of first things happening this weekend and a lot of anniversary and a lot of libations that we need to continue to pour and we need to continue to think about the folks in Lake Charles and other places um, that have or, or were impacted by 
Hurricane Laura and are still impacted. You know, no water, no electricity. And um gonna look to put some uh resources up so people can know, you know, where they can send their money so that it definitely uh touches the people. But um I'm thinking uh about playing I really like the ancient mothers <laughs> that I played already, which I think is pretty cool, um, from the uh Sula Spirit of Journey within. So I'm gonna play the Ancient Mothers. And I might play humanity, but I'm definitely gonna play Ancient Mothers first.
Yeah, my y'all, oh, she know y'all, the many others Mommy wants the onset, son 